side quest for the 1950s backlot. If you need your please, the hand is triple work five. My name is Joseph. I'm your great great grandma's favorite purse. Your co host, Peter. Before we get into this week's episode, Peter, we have a new V'ger Please venture that we want to make sure people are aware of in true in true uh, uh, Ferengi fashion. Mm. This is going to be a bad episode. <laughs> and it's that we have a store, a store we will never make money off of, I guess, is uh, we want to make clear. This is not the most widely listened to podcast on the Internet, and... Peter and I have never attempted to make it so or try and generate any real revenue off of it, except that which is uh, there to to pay for our bills. And we get very close to doing that. And we appreciate everyone who is subscribed to our Patreon and we provide extra content. And if that's interest to you, hey, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash feature, please. You can find us very easily. Uh, but we've had requests over the years for merch. Thing is, you know, we don't want to put it. You know, spend a lot of money designing some things and then having to have a storefront because we wouldn't sell very much, right? If if maybe 600 to 700 people listen to this show, uh, you know, it would, even if 10% of you decided to buy something, which if that many people wouldn't, it wouldn't generate enough money to deal with the costs of doing that. But fortunately for us, absolute rock star fan kevin who is also responsible for the rebranding uh mission patch and album cover and banner that we've been using uh decided to take this on gratis as something to put up there so that uh while we'll never make any money off of selling the merch given this is uh, essentially a uh a, a teespring store <laughs> you can get stuff that is uh shall we say, designed for the V'ger Please fan. So let us just say this is not merchandise. What we are selling are weapons. Yes. They are self-adhesive weapons that you can use to harm those around you, to insult loved ones, to uh, cover the mirror at your favorite bar so nobody can see their face because it's a bunch of goofy Star Trek stickers no one would recognize. We're getting very close to Christmas. And if there's someone in your family that you really don't like or you want to piss off, what better way to do that than with some V'ger Please yoga pants? There is divorce potential in this store. There is uh, the ability to initiate a very awkward conversation that you don't want to have about the extremely nerdy podcast that you listen to in this store. But most importantly, there's a Real Talk Tuvok sticker. Yeah, but, that real talk to box. It looks like he pulled that off of the um, the Funimation uh, threshold. Not the Funimation. It was the uh, TOS animated series version of Threshold that someone did. Well, that it was done in the, the the Funimation style. I like it. It looks good. And yeah, if you've got a brother in law you really don't like, stick him with stickers of my face. And he'll be like, "What's this fucking Hulk Hogan sticker?" And be like, "I don't know. I thought you were into that. I have no idea what that is." But there are some mugs, there's some stickers, uh, there's some shirts, there's even a hoodie. And as Peter alluded to, uh, yoga pants slash leggings, really? Goes uh, great on any side view mirror for anybody in the parking lot that may have taken your space. Keep your glove box full of them. Make a lot of friends. But uh, by all means, uh, go to zephus.store. That is Z-E-A. F-U-S dot store. You'll see it all there. Get as much as you want. Again, 
we're never going to see any kind of appreciable profit off of this. This is entirely for the self-gratification of Peter and I, who are the majority of the sales so far. No lie. <laughs> and uh, everybody else who just wants a little memento of the show and this pretty uh, absurd journey we've been on for several years. So have at. And again, Kevin is amazing because he designed all of this stuff. He put up he put up the store for us and he's basically just managing it all since it's never going to amount to very much on our behalf. So Kevin, uh, thank you. And my future Vija Please coffee mug also thanks you. And uh, with a thanks out of the way, with now any appreciation for our world behind us, what episode of Enterprise did we watch this week? Season two, episode two, Carbon Creek. What'd you think of uh, last week? I told you first how I felt. I, and I gushed about Shockwave part two. You were meh. This week, you have the floor first, Peter. What what did you think of this thing? Uh, first line of my notes, as I started the TV up and having forgot what was coming up, I saw Carbon Creek and I saw that little quaint bullshit mining town thumbnail. I said, ugh, this. <laughs> I've got a lot of thoughts on this thing. The biggest thought is... How is this episode two for season two? How are you going to start the top of your season off with what is very clearly supposed to be mid-season filler? It is not terrible. But someone tells you this is as bad as 1159 or like puts it in the strata of terrible Star Trek episodes. It's not even close. It's a relatively interesting little idea for, like you said, mid-season filler this is season two episode 14 material i like that that's what this is this is uh you know well we've got to take a break from our main storyline we've done some serialized stuff we got to do a quick one shot and this is the week we could film at the Half back lot crew got killed in an alien infection and yeah there was something burnt down you know in the sets <laughs> You know, we can't just film on the bridge this week. Came back and choked a bunch of people out, and this time we couldn't save them. Uh, the, the baseball episode I hear so much about out of deep space now. We just need to take a step back and catch a breather. I started off really resenting that I was going to have to watch this because I was in the mood to watch Star Trek. I was in the mood for some sci-fi, and I was like, man, this is fucking bullshit. Like, the story's stupid. The setup is stupid that it's to Paul telling this story to trip an archer, of course, around the fucking dinner table or whatever. And I'm not really sure at what point it happened, but things turned around and I was like, I think it was about the point where he's in the mind collapse. And I was like, oh, damn, I'm actually pretty vested in this. And I'm I'm genuinely interested in what's going on. And I'm enjoying this episode. Uh, it crept up on me. There was some real corny, dumb shit humor. There is. Uh, I'm going to say right now, my clear pick for the most blatant. What was blatant sexual uh, blatant sexual exploitation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is award winning. I mean, we'll get to that. Let's. I'm not surprised to hear you say it snuck up on you because, like I said, it's not terrible. There's there. There is a storyline here that's pretty good. It's just there's so much more you need to start developing about this universe you're in before we fucking do this. Like, 
if this was this was some late season stuff when you got a chance to breathe, it's actually kind of like neat to see like four Vulcan characters. Well, three Vulcan characters sort of interacting yeah, with each other about the humanity. Other thing. There's three of the main cast in this. Now, I'm not going to lose any sleep that Mayweather and Reed don't get seen at all in this. Right. But Phlox, Hoshi, Shran. Uh, True main cast member there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Porthos, you know. Uh, <laughs> everything you're saying is hitting the nail on the head. You had what I felt was a stumble for your big episode back. You look at season one and you look at your massive fucking viewership drop off and you haven't really brought the numbers up on air yet, Mm -mm. but I can't imagine it's looking pretty at the tail end of season one. And I don't know how quickly they get uh, viewership numbers back once, you know, through Nielsen or whatever. And if they can go, oh, man, shit's really looking bad after the the season premiere for season two. Like if they can emergency shuffle things around, but you're going to fucking come in after a a entire season one of botches and misses and hemorrhaging your do your viewers. And you're going to come in with softball like this. What drugs are you on? Yeah, this is the sort of show you make when you got to fill time where you're very confident in what you're doing. And maybe it's just that they they've lost the fear, right? Like. They've been doing this so long. They've been doing it since the you know 1980s at this point. And they've been in charge of it since the ensigns of command, essentially. That's kind of when they stole the rest of the the initiative away from the old guard. That they're just like, fuck it. This is what we want to do. We're just doing it, right? And they have no care for how many people are really watching anymore because they're desensitized to it. You know, they're made men in Hollywood at this point. I mean, they're gonna they're they're gonna do even more seasons after this and movies, you know, well, movie at least. What point do you think they become aware that they're pulling the plug? They don't know that the plug is being pulled until they are in season four, because as we will discuss, as we wrap up the show sometime in the future, enterprise is still one of the best shows on UPN all the way until the end of the UPN. It is literally the end of the UPN that ends Star Trek Enterprise because it is not a show that the combined UPN WB uh, CW network is interested in having on it uh, because the demo for Enterprise, while numerically larger than some things that you would think that it would be beaten by, like say Buffy, the vampire slayer is skewing older than they want for the ads. They want a young, fresh demo that is getting hit by these ads. And so we all know the kind of programming that ultimately succeeds on the CW. And you could never imagine something like Star Trek enterprise being on that channel. There's a reason for that. So, they are firmly ensconced in their world at this juncture. Think they're going to get a minimum seven and they can do yeah. as they damn please because the yeah, fans. They're fucking Star Trek and they're still the biggest show on this fucking network. Hmm. Not close aside from, from WWE Smackdown. Hmm. <laughs> well, let's get into talking some details here. Like I said, this is going to pick up at a, uh, a real riveting dinner table scene. It's Trip Archer and Paul, and there's going to be some celebration. 
This yeah. is to Paul's what ten month mark, one year anniversary. So it's Paul at this juncture on this episode. This is one year since Broken Bow in terms of the show's timeline, and it certainly beats the ten day record of the prior Vulcan that was serving on a Starfleet vessel. Hey, congratulations to Paul. You're now eligible for paid time off and paid sick time. Yeah, uh, you know, you get five days of sick time and you get six days of vacation. But you don't get to cash out the sick time if you quit. Use it or lose it to Paul. Yeah, yeah you got to use it or lose it. No rollover here. Uh, she decides that she is going to celebrate by allowing herself the indulgence of some wine. We're supposed to act like that's a big deal. Uh, has it felt to you like it has been a year of them out in space? Honestly, it feels like a more compressed time period. If I was going to be blunt, they they did a poor job of spacing out the the space hazards in season one, and it felt like they were happening a lot. So I would assume that it felt more like this was six months. But I get it. They're saying it's a year because in actuality, you know, the show has been on for a year. So fuck it. I think that they are missing things like night where there's a a log by someone saying, you know, we've spent the past month and a half cataloging the star system. Yeah. People are getting bored. We're looking for something to do. There's Uh, like a couple episodes in at the beginning. Like, oh man, we've been out here six weeks. We haven't seen shit, you know, from like trip or something. And that was it. After that, it's like, feels like it's been one fucking banger after another for these guys. And it hasn't felt like a year, but. Yeah, it's because they haven't had that sort of dialogue moment where they've discussed how long they've been fucking doing some boring science shit or something like that. I don't really remember what the path. Oh, oh, oh. So then Archer's like, well, I got to do an evaluation on you. You know, no offense. It's it's just business. And then DePaul's like, yeah, well, I got to do an evaluation on you too, motherfucker, because Vulcan High Command's got your number and they're just looking freezing nitpick. None of that gets discussed. What I need here at this, when they were toasting her, is not congratulations. It's been one year. It's congratulations. You're really part of the crew now. Gosh, did you stick it to Vulcan High Command at the end of um, Shockwave or two? Yeah. Uh, Thanks for sticking up for us. It was you that sold them uh, uh, Starfleet Command on keeping us out here. This is to celebrate you, and that's why we're going to make it the, you know, focus on it. They don't mention any of that stuff, uh, but she does say, yeah, Vulcan High Command wants me to evaluate you as a captain. And then Archer's like, ooh. And he's like, hey, by the way, because I've been stalking you, what with my face falling in your boobs and me telling you to share a blanket with me and all the other creepy, inappropriate shit that's gone on, uh, while combing through your service records, slash stalking you i saw that you had a five day leave six years ago or whatever fucking crazy number uh to to carbon creek i was just wondering if you'd tell me what that is about imagine your boss calling you in for a meeting or going to dinner and and asking you some super fucking specific overly intrusive question like that like what the fuck Yeah, like, I'm sorry, uh, so you were reading all of my vacation requests in my HR jacket and decided just to bring up in front of one of my other coworkers where I go on my vacations? 
that are like in the notes that I put in my PTO requests. Are you fucking serious right now? <laughs> Call HR. <laughs> Call them now. And my lawyer. <laughs> Remember, in the depths of space, no one can hear you call HR. In the jacket, says to Paul, who was stationed in Sausalito, went to Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. It's in the middle of, you know, Appalachian Territory and coal mining areas of the state of Pennsylvania. A real thing, by the way. Or at least was. Not as much coal mining going on in the United States anymore. And... Arch is like, what the fuck? The Vulcans don't go to fucking Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a thing that happens. What's going on? What's with this? She's and, like, well, I saw that movie Silent Hill, and I wanted to go and try and find that one town that was shut down because the fire is still burning under there. I, I find the idea of Pyramid Head fascinating. How good would just like uh, Voyager was all wrapped up with Event Horizon? If there was like a weird reoccurring theme of silent hill and enterprise i would like enterprise way more and you know if we could fit jolene blaylock into one of those creepy nurse outfits with the mutilated faces she could just be the the cop she can be the cop in the like the motorcycle jacket and obviously with the midriff shirt yes yeah good point absolutely thank you yeah so uh to pulse like i was on well, I had we'll a personal mayweather in as the nurse because then he can't talk and you can just see those shredded abs and it's yeah like, yeah everyone's everyone's happy there <laughs> but to paul says it was for personal reasons and like tucker's like um personal reasons you what you fucking know someone there <laughs> like you have like an old buddy with you went to penn state with like she's like no what's that and so she kind of looks a little, you know, defensive and then kind of resets herself. This is part of what I was saying last week. Like, to, uh, Julie Blaylock got better at playing this character in her off season. She, she decided to tweak her performance and she kind of like eyes up both Tucker and Archer and says, you know, I can, um, I can tell you a story about first contact between humans and Vulcans that happened there in the 19 fucking fifties. Would you like to hear that story? They're like, no, that didn't happen. It was Zappern Cochran. It was in Montana. I saw first contact. It's bullshit. It's like, no, this is what happened. You want to hear the story? Hmm? You two want to fucking hear it? And that's how the episode begins. I like that. She was kind of impish about it a little bit, you know, like, feeding into their to their uh interest in what's going on she goes no this is uh this is where first contact happened and they're like oh and then we we you know it's 1957 doo is all the rage look at all these old ford trucks 37s eat your hearts out uh, we find out that uh, to Paul's great great grandmother, right? Her mother's mother's mother. So that would be her great grandmother. No, yeah, great great grandmother. Correct. A strong Vulcan tradition of serving as uh, first mates. Uh, did did we also throw in the stupid joke yet about how Archer's like, well, how old are? Or sorry, Trip's like, how old are you anyways? And oh, gee, Trip, that's classified. Whatever. God forbid was, we get through without that boomer humor. 
It was the most cringe part of the episode by far. Uh, no, the sheet scene was the most. Okay, <laughs> I almost forgot. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, humor about T'Pol being old because she's a Vulcan is the second worst thing that happens in this episode. So there the Vulcans are. They're up in space. They got their weird leather biker outfits on. Sputnik flies by. <laughs> it's, good it's, Sputnik. It's, it's good old Sputnik flies by. Recognizable Sputnik with its beep boop. All of a sudden, the the repulsor lifts fail at a critical point too close to Earth. Like they do, they're going to have to crash land. And they find a spot to uh, land that is in the wilderness where there is no settlements. And of course, this crash uh, very conveniently kills their elderly captain. And Tamir, who is being played by Julian Blaylock because it is her ancestor, is now the leader of the three surviving Vulcans from from the uh, the crash, who uh, include Mistral and Strawn are the other two. And they had all of their shit broken that would help them communicate. They did put out a distress signal. They have no idea if it even transmitted, let alone if anyone heard it, and are unsure as to what to do until they run out of rations, think about murdering a deer and feasting on its flesh, and contemplate maybe we need to go into town and save our lives. I do like that the conversation that they have is a little tinged by the fact that they have self-preservation instinct. And guys basically is like, I'm not just fucking dying out here. <laughs> I've just, I've decided that if uh, it's between me just starving to death in the woods of this planet, I don't know. And going to the nearby settlement, I'm going to the fucking settlement. Well, no, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause the, the idea of hunting the deer down comes up and they would rather risk cultural contamination than, them breaking those vegetarian practices. Uh, but the third option on the table is we just starve to death and follow the rules. And I like the counter to that is, well, what do you think is going to happen when they find our bodies and our, our spaceship eventually? What kind of contamination do you think is going to happen there? Us dying is not going to do anyone any favors. Although I would have been down if one of them was like, well, we could like incinerate ourselves with a, with a phaser disruption or, you know, jump on a grenade mm-hmm. or, I don't know, other gruesome space death things. So Mistral says, fuck it, I'm going into town. Screw your chain of command. And then to Paul's. Tamir. Tamir. Let's just Mm -hmm. go with Gilf. (laughs) Gilf. Just Gilf. Super Gilf. She's like, well, I'm going to. Uh, but I'm in charge and you don't talk to anybody. I didn't think that Mistral was going to be a big of focus in this episode as he was, nor did I feel that I was going to come to appreciate him by the end of the degree that I do. Uh, this is a pretty solid character. I don't know who played him, but the guy's got a good performance throughout. And I think even despite all the shit I know about Vulcans and the portrayal of Vulcan and stuff like his descent into rebellion works well so the guy who played uh mistral is the same guy who played all of the knots young nazis across all of the star trek properties really so, yeah so remember the guy who remember knocked his, up alana 
the guy who knocked up Alana, he plays Nazis later in Enterprise <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, and he played one. He he he, he played uh, the the worst Borg of all time. Oh no! Yeah. Well, good on him for redeeming himself, I guess. Uh, Not for the Nazis, for one. <laughs> he was fine as a Nazi. That's the real he did, war crime. He he did the re- he did a fine job as a Nazi. It was it was one that was Ugh. that was problematic. Okay. <laughs> That was problematic. So this they is a clear makeup for it, though. Sneak to the outskirts of town, and they go, "Oh, there's clothes. Um, let's just steal the clothes." So much going on here. Let's start with the mildest level of uh, of insult. There isn't just clothes like hanging. My mom uses a wash line. She refused mm-hmm. to dry anything, so all my clothes growing up were always fucking sun faded and weird. Right, of course. Let me tell you what you don't put on the clothesline. Hats and shoes. Yeah, because you're not washing those the way that you would wash other clothes. I never saw my mom put a pair of high heels or work boots on the fucking clothesline. So the idea that they got head to toe full fucking costumes out of this. Ridiculous. But nowhere near as ridiculous. So thank you, Peter. Uh, Thank you you for allowing. Thank you. Thank you for this. So, so the gag here is they are changing into human clothes and they're talking about their plans. What they decide to do, because this show cannot possibly go an entire episode without exploiting Jolene Playlock, if at all possible, is have her undressed entirely, changing into human clothes with a bed sheet that is backlit and blocking her view from camera. So the intention and the effect is to show her silhouette n- naked through the to the camera while the dialogue is occurring. There are two things to note about this effect. One, she is actually naked behind it, and you can tell because you can see the silhouette of her fucking nipples. Mm-hmm. Dead ass. It's true. Right there. And two, they allow it to go on long enough that when they do a gag that she put on the clothes backwards, that she goes back to the bed sheet and takes the clothes off again. And it like continues on for just a few more seconds so that you maybe think you're going to get to see your nipple again before cutting it off right before that would happen. Go back to Chakotay Fox. Beltran sex machine, right? Right. Uh, where species 8472 has set up their ridiculous holodeck space station Starfleet command infiltration simulation. Yeah, and Ellen Ty wants to bang the shit out of uh, Robert Beltran. Yeah, and he's hanging out in her quarters, and she goes up and she gets changed. Uh, she very clearly has a penis. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I'll take it in that scene. It's a throwaway guest star. There's clear sexual undertones. Stuff's going forward. At this point, uh, Beltran has charmed the pants off of everybody, and we can all understand why uh, a space Mewtwo would be melting between the legs for him, right? Of course. Fine. It's not season two, episode two, in this goofy softball episode for your stumbling TV show where you've already uh, 
chain exploited the female lead. And now you've got this goofy flashback. Here's let me tell you a story about my grandma. And worse than that to me is that when Ellen Ty took her clothes off for that episode, she did so in the context of a scene of seduction. That's what I'm saying. It's an ero- it, it's yeah. a, the silk stockings. Like mm-hmm. it's business time. We're going to be doing this, business stuff. That is, and all it is is a scene to deliver exposition about their plan for interacting with humanity. Do a quick joke about not understanding how human clothes work. The exploitation of Jolene Blaylock's appearance is just something they decided to do for fun. For funsies. It's also too, the the Vulcans are stupid enough. They're going to strip buck naked and change out of their spacesuits into clothes they're stealing in someone's backyard. That is where they're stealing the clothes from. They're not just going to take the clothes and then go back in the woods. Like this whole thing is fucking stupid. Remember when we complained in Voyager about one scene where they shot Bolana and seven of nine from the top with their asses clearly like rather prominent in the shot. They were crawling through the Jeffries too. talking about like men and having sex. We're like, yeah, this is weirdly like off off kilter for Voyager to like do something so sexual. What a weird few seconds that was. That feels so quaint now. <laughs> like it feels adorable that that was a little weird for this. Pro- like this is just getting I, so cringe. I mean, maybe somewhere they're like, hey, that kind of stuff scored really well and all that gratuitous shit. Like, again, my dad really likes enterprise and i know he's got a thing for to paul i'm assuming he ate the stuff up and he i mean for the record i maybe I, I like looking at pretty things and, and she's pretty but i'm still forced to be confronted like this doesn't belong and, yeah, and it's bad and maybe that's like a, a break this down even further you know seven of nine a lot of our dialogue about that is like you know shot her low put her in those fucking heels made her ass look great Listen, fucking Jerry Lynn looked like a million dollars. Obviously, she's hot as hell on that show. No one's disputing that. No one's disputing that, you phys- that these people are, are attractive and they are attractive to look at and we enjoy looking at attractive things. But there comes a point where it becomes so obviously like exploitive for the purpose of exploiting that you're just like, this is just isn't cool. She had her scene where she's like, Okay, Harry Kim, let's have sex. Take off your clothes. And then Harry like punks out and runs off. And like, that's pretty much the end of it. Mm-hmm. it it's like, I don't know if Jerry Ryan just had the balls to be like, let, let's fucking stop with this. And Do like when, when she was doing that, it was in service to the story, right? Like she's in the silky, uh, uh, like uh, Chanteur's dress because she's the lounge singer in the World War II simulation. Um, she's wearing the red dress and Chakotay's uh, quarters in her simulation about going on a date. You know, like any time they, they went for it, it was at least in service to what was going on, just like Ellen Ty taking her clothes off. This is just ridiculous. It's pointless. It's weirdly, you're, you can see her nipples. Like they went that far with it. And I mean, this is a 1080p recording. Yeah. Right. This, in this high def. Recorded high def. How I'm watching on my TV, I'm like, those are fucking nipples. Everybody at home was like, those are nipples Uh, in its own in a vacuum in a sexy scene. I don't think we'd talk about it for five or six minutes like we have, but it just it's a button they keep pushing and everybody's sitting around grinning while they're doing it. Um, And it sucks. 
and fucking. It was once her. every six episodes would be different. It's every fucking week. Yeah, I feel bad for her. Uh, so they get dressed. She puts the dress on the wrong way, and then uh, ugh, the hell's his name? I I, I don't want to call him menstrual. It's M- Mestel, but Betral. Oh, uh, Mistral. Mestral. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, he's like, "No, I think you got that on backwards." I this the fact this dude's like a human keener. I think bleeds through correctly very quickly in this. They get into town. They're walking. They catch uh, people standing around a radio, really getting into the the baseball game. T. Gilf's like, I bet it's violent uh, combat. And he's like, no, I, I think it's entertainment. Like <laughs> this dude, he's coming off as a human. He's a real human fanboy very quickly. Yeah, he 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 read all the lore before <laughs> going on the mission. You know, he's like up to date on what's going on. And they finally find themselves at a bar and have the dramatic walk in where everyone looks at these two weirdos with their weird haircuts. And I do like that the tension is played up of how careful they really should probably be being right now. You know, like these people don't know aliens are real and we are aliens. We have to choose our words carefully. <laughs> we No mention of the communist threat. Yeah, I was. Ex- you would expect that there would be some sort of red menace element to this, but especially because right. Sputnik and scientific discovery is such a big part of it. But because this was made post 9-11 and the Cold War is like dead and buried 10 years, I just think like they thought it would be more interesting to generalize it than make it also, about communism. Also, at some point, some sort of like X-Files, FBI g-man to show up and, and push things along and i think that's kind of why i liked it is they didn't go for that low-hanging fruit i wish i i wish they would have said they were like they were refugees from like poland or something like that they're from eastern europe there there's that plot pen coming out i could have also gone for some explanation as to the language barrier did the universal translator for vulcans exist back then i think it would have been appropriate just to say hey we are specifically investigating these humans we already know their language and all of us have learned it so we can, you know, spy on them effectively. Yeah. They just know like English. There's no, turns out 200 years ago, Vulcans also spoke English and it wasn't them switching over to actually speaking. Vulcan was a recent development. When they get into the bar and have a little bit of an awkward first moment, um, they eventually hit upon a, a way to, come up with money so that they can buy food, which is the real reason they're there. And that is to pull hustle. Cue so, a really great billiards montage. <laughs> truly a very intense time incentive intensive billiards montage. But the bet ends up being that uh, if the local barfly wins, he has to, he gets to have a drink with, with to Paul or to Jilf. And if <laughs> if Mistral wins, then they get paid off. And they pay we see like twenty five cents. Twenty five cents a ball, right? Oh, was it a ball? Yeah, it was a. I think it was a ball. So it oh. was for some steaks. Because yeah. I feel like you could buy a lot of groceries for twenty five cents back in nineteen what fifty seven. Yeah, not quite that many. So I think they got a couple bucks off them, and they did in fact turn it into food. So. Uh, after a very intense montage, Mistral rallies. He wins the match. Get, get paid off. 
and eventually uh you know uh have the cash to be able to to buy the uh the groceries they need to survive how interesting that watching mistral play pool nowhere near as utterly painful as tuvok playing pool in uh god what was that terrible tom paris sandrines oh. <sighs> <laughs> So they cut back, I think, at this point to Enterprise itself when Tucker is starting to question what's going on here as to say, like, this is this is absurd. This is such a fundamental retelling of history of Earth as we know it. You're like you're like saying that Neil Armstrong didn't land on the fucking moon. He's telling me if a bunch of Vulcans crash landed in rural Pennsylvania in the middle of the 1950s and survived by doing some fucking pool hustling. Are you serious? <laughs> like, come on, man. I'm, I'm from Florida, but I'm not that from Florida that I'm going to believe this. But I honestly think that the episode would have been better served by really minimizing these dinner scenes. Like I thought the, the, the flashback story ends up being charming enough that uh, Scott Bakula's like, I don't know, condescending dinner tones just takes away from what's actually going on. Uh, but the important thing is, are they laying the grant, the groundwork that Archer and trip are extremely critical of what DePaul is telling him. And it's, you know, that that's legit. Like, what do you mean? First contact was not with Seth from Cockrum. Oh, no, it's, uh, you know, strongly documented in the uh, Vulcan Science Academy annuals in our libraries and stuff. And it's like. Maybe this would have been the right time for. Archer to have some of his world famous Vulcan racism and be like. <laughs> more lies from the Vulcans or just like, you know, y- yet again, them. Withholding information, just, just something like. Fucking, of course, that was fake first contact, and these guys have been holding back on us. I think I would have preferred it more if Trip and Ar- and Archer were like bought in from the start. They just were like, "What? No, keep going!" <laughs> like they're super into the story, and they so buy in. And then the punchline at the end is like, T'Pol like tells them they believe that story and that it was was all a joke, and it was her her, her learning from a year on the ship of how to tell a, a, a tall tale. And how to be comedic and then said, you can evaluate me on my ability to absorb human culture based on how you uh, believed my story. And then scratch the purse scene at the end. No, I like the purse scene at the end. That it was actually true. That's the best part. Well, I mean, she kind of pivots the whole thing to be like, no, guys, I was just joking all along. Like once they really like push back and like almost razz her for the the level of the, the story. And then she's like, yeah, I was just joking. Ha 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 got you yeah it's a little passive at the end where it should have been more her making fun of them for believing it so that they never talk about it again because how could they have possibly believed something so ridiculous of course this was a joke to paul's just so next level as a vulcan that she's mastered humor immediately and then she goes back and being like you know looks at the purse like whew, got out of that one i would like the conversation <laughs> to have been like archer and trip like leaning back in their chairs and like I thought Vulcans can't lie. And like your grandma and her friends were just lying all over that motherfucker. Like you guys are a bunch of liars. (laughs) 
Vulcans are just <sighs> huge liars. And she's like, yeah, but this is actually just a lie, too. And uh, so they they wander into town. They hustle the dude for uh, for pool. They go out in the woods. They eat, but they figure out this is not sustainable. So they make the decision that they're going to move into town. They're going to get a one bedroom efficiency and we are going to enter into like late 60s, early 70s sitcom humor. I would say this is more firmly in the 1960s. If this show takes place in the 50s, but it's definitely like a, a Lie Love Lucy style of comedy which i did enjoy the shout out on that given uh yeah and given desi lu productions uh uh sort of background with trek existing in that at all they also mentioned the twilight zone which is funny because it was rebooted on the upn and being produced by the guy who produced ds9 at the time which which is why they did it It was literally enterprise was the lead-in to the twilight zone at the time this came out uh, to Gilf is working at the bar as like a, a you know just like as a server bartender slash janitor. Uh, the uh, Mistral is working in the mine. I love the, the idea of the Vulcan getting the black lung. <laughs> and Strawn is working as a local handyman, uh, which he becomes very annoyed with and uses super tech sometimes to fix things that annoy him, like pipes. That might have that been my turning point where I'm like, I'm liking this, like watching this dude deal with a leaky sink and then be like, fuck it, I'm going to use a sonic. Fix this lead pipe. They're going to really regret building these in 100 years. Maybe the three smartest people on the continent. And they're doing the most menial, low stakes stuff because um, they got to stay anonymous. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's a neat premise. And they having kind of different reactions to humanity. Um, you know, strong, strom, uh, Mo. We'll call him Mo because that is, in fact, the joke that they make, and he's very Mo like. Yes. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't like dealing with the stuff. He can't wait to get the fuck out of there. Uh, to Gilf is medium. You know, she's trying to just like, let's keep a low profile and see what happens. All we can do is persist, you know, sort of focus on doing anything. Uh, and of course, Mistral is very pro human, spends a lot of time watching TV. And perhaps not coincidentally, he has a job where he's interacting with the humans all the time in the mine. And then he, they show him having, he goes to the bar uh, with some regularity, evidently. Uh, and talks to the bar owner's son, uh, a very bright young man named Billy, uh, who is trying to go to college, which was an interesting uh, subplot when college was a rare thing to go to. And this like one kid in this town is the only one who's going to potentially get to go because he's like the smartest fucking kid in the county. Right. So it's kind of hard sometimes to recall a time when you couldn't just go to college if you were like at least just a medium intelligence you would find some state school or some community college that you would would take you if you wanted to go this was this was an era where it was a fucking event if someone in your fucking city went to college and he is the uh body of humanity's hopes and dreams of the future that's what billy's character represents he constantly talks about you know his expanding uh 
uh, consciousness when it comes to other civilizations, when it comes to science, comes to discovery, and it is through him that character the that the two Vulcan characters interact with him uh, gradually come to appreciate humanity more as a sort of uh, avatar of the potential future. Uh, it's well handled. I like the way that they set him up as that figure. His character conflict is, of course, it's only a partial scholarship. Everybody in the community has been throwing money in the tip jar to try and. Uh, get him the rest of the money he needs to be able to go. And if you cannot put two and two together to see that in the end, it's going to be the Vulcans paying his way, then. <laughs> Sorry, you shouldn't you. be watching Shame television. You. Just throw your television in the garbage. <laughs> I like them focusing on this guy is like the B plot. And, and here's the hopes and dreams of, of what's going on instead of the Kurtzman angle, which would have been, uh, redneck fist fight in the parking lot where all the rednecks get their asses kicked by the super strong uh, Vulcans and we kind of spit on humanity. I like the optimism, right? Yeah, like all three of the Vulcan characters are treated well. Like this town is a nice inviting little town in the Midwest. That's what it is. That's how it's portrayed. And they they call that out too, you know. They do. Mistral's like, no, these guys, you know, we've been treated well. Uh, you're being overly critical uh, to Gilf is like, because they know we're human. And if they did, if they thought we were aliens, we would be, be treated so well, whatever. Mistral working down in the mines. No, no. Okay. So he ends up going on a date with uh, Billy's mom. The, yeah. Maggie, the, the bartender who they've kind of befriended. Uh, we get a little awkward session after they go see a, a baseball game where she very forwardly kisses him. And it's a little awkward, but he's like, no, I like it. But unfortunately- I like that. I, I like that Maggie was obviously uh, a divorced mom type who's like, I'm desperately trying to get with a guy. And you seem like you got your shit mildly together yeah. relative to everyone else in this town. Some uh, fucking throw it at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you were kind of awkward about it. And now I'm very self-conscious. But that comes to an abrupt end when you see Tegilf giving him like the death stare across the road like. This isn't academic anymore, clearly. Uh, you said you were going back to the ship to get a uh, signal amplifier so we could get a better picture for I Love Lucy. Instead, you're over here playing kissy pie with these hairless apes. You're in too deep. You're going native. You've been co-opted. And he's like, uh, yeah, I have. And she's like, well, I order you to stop on 11. He's like, on what authority? There's no mission. We're just aliens on a planet now. Chain of command's gone. You can't tell me what to do. And uh, thumbs the brakes. We move into our next kind of feature, at which is where Mistral is having a chat with the dude he initially pool hustled. They're like, hey, man, it's been a while since we've seen you. Like, what what's going on? Maggie's really, you know, said she hasn't seen you in a couple of days now. And uh, Mistral's like, well, I can't. Boom. Mind collapse. Oh, but- before the mind collapse, there is a scene where Tagilf talks to Billy about meditation and like expanding consciousness. It's just one of the two scenes that happens that sort of fleshes him out, which it's it, it provides Tagilf with the motivation to be more involved in what's going on. So it's important that it does happen because she goes from do not fucking interact with these people to warming up more and more as the episode goes on. And her conversation with Billy is a big part. The of that. shock that I had that they didn't end up like bending to Gilf into Stifler's mom somehow where she takes Billy's virginity 
and put <laughs> the her behind. Restraint. Yeah, like how 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 is this not how is she not having this conversation with him on the other side of a backlit bed sheet with nipples out? Like, if you want your apple pie yeah. moment, it would have been between these two. So, if I'm going to give uh, any kind of uh, golf clap to the writers, it'll be for avoiding having to gilf sleep with Billy. As you mentioned, though, there is a mine accident. Well, and this is where Mistral is going to be going uh, from the character known as Mistral to Vulcan dude, bro. (laughs) Mistral is so struck by the tragedy of this moment that his first course of action is to go to the ship and even calls his, his shipmates to be like, help me find a fucking particle weapon. I have to help free the 20 miners who are trapped because it's going to take the humans days to get there with their tools. And I can just zap some fucking rocks and I can get them the fuck out of there. And the, the response that he initially gets from to Gilf and Strawn is no, let them die. Are you fucking serious? We can't let them know we have particle weapons. How do you think that fucking ends? And he said, you know, like I'm, I have empathy I for these people. I am going to help them. And it's a great example of how different Vulcans are about arguing with each other because there is never a direct threat of violence. It is a, it is a duel of rhetoric where ultimately he basically says, try it. I advise not to try and stop me, right? Like I've decided I'm going to help these people. Like that's what Mistral says after he's clearly not going to be able to convince Strawn to help. And he's essentially trying to convince them not to try and intervene, but they never get to the point where they try to physically interact with each other. You know, it's all arguments. And eventually Mistral just calls the bluff and says, I'm going to fucking find a gun and I'm going to help these people. And I do not advise you, you try and stop me from doing so. And the calling that bluff is enough to end the entire kind of dispute. And ultimately uh, to Gilf elects to assist uh, Mistral in assisting the miners by helping guide him along a path where he's not going to get fucking caught. So what you got is a uh, Vulcan dude, bro down in the mines with a big shiny Chrome dildo gun. Mm-hmm. And then you he's get hiding somewhere in like in his <laughs> pants or something in his overall his prison wallet. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to Gilf topside with the same exact type tricorder that T'Pol uses. And she's going to, you know. It's like an iPhone 4, and it's not, a, and, and, you know, T'Pol now has the iPhone hillbilly. 10, has, yeah. the, has the 11 or something now. Yeah. You know, so this is, this is a prior version. It doesn't have as good a camera. Yeah. She guides them through zapping a couple walls. As you mentioned, they find the miners. Again, I'm expecting them to be discovered or some sort of wrench to be thrown in to like take us back down tropey territory. But no, the whole thing goes off without a hitch. Great. He saves the day. Vulcan dude bro is now the hero of the town. They're being embraced by everybody. And life seems like it's going pretty swell for their little uh, sitcom living situation. Uh, but then the unthinkable happens and the old communicator, we get some science, some shades of uh, was little how lame house on the prairie where they come back for Jane Wayne. Oh, yeah. They, yeah we're, we're, when you thought that would not happen, mm-hmm. 
They contact him. There was two things about how they set all this up that I thought was cool. One, it's three months after the mine collapse they show up. So they have plenty of time to settle in to being real fixtures in the community, which again belays why they all have a different attitude by the time they're getting pulled out even the one who doesn't want to be mo there. yeah even mo is like and eh, still fixing this for this lady that was like my I favorite part so yeah the the they get contact by the vulcans are like we're going to be entering the solar system we got your distress signal we'll be See there in three, in three days. days which i don't know what the space math is that would entering the solar system but it's still going to take three days whatever it's very clear that Vulcan dude bro is not going to be heading back. But yeah, the the last day when they're getting everything ready, well, almost everything ready. Yeah. Seeing Mo sitting there, he's like, I thought we all quit our jobs and Mo's still fixing a fucking vacuum cleaner. He's like, yeah, but that lady asked me if I could help her out anyways. And yeah, I said I would. And I, I liked that when they cut back briefly back to enterprise and they're talking about the, the fact that, uh, Mistral saved those miners and are like and and trip like asks it like with incredulity like well, didn't they fucking wonder how he did it and the way to Paul answers it is of course they did but they chose just not to explore that question like everyone knew that was weird but this guy saved all these people's lives they're not gonna fucking ask how like even if they're like fuck it thanks uh, you're great good old days <laughs> yeah, like I don't they're like, I don't know if you're some fucking weird commie. He's got some fucking weird commie I've shit. I've actually seen why. his ears. I'm pretty sure all three of those guys are like demons on the run from hell. Yeah, but whatever. Like, you're super nice and you're dating the bartender mm-hmm. and you saved all of our lives. So we're not going to fucking ask. <laughs> like, it's, you know, all you, right, you, then you hang out in this secrets. one apartment with like this one chick and this one other dude. There's there's layers of this that we do not need to fucking uncover. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for saving our lives. You're great. And you can continue to work in this mine as long as you'd like, you know, like that, that was such a, just the very subtle way of like, you can sense how these 1950s humans feel out. These guys are fucking weird, but they're actually being super great. So we're just not going to fucking upset this apple cart. You know, what's happening right happen. now is that you can get clearly massive buy-in for your audience from your audience for the most ridiculous situation. If you just call attention to it and put the flimsiest of reason in there, how many times yeah, do we take Voyager to the mat and like bitch about things? Cause all it needed was that one throwaway line of dialogue. And here it is. Some guy <laughs> got through three weeks of mining work and saved a room full of miners. Yeah. It doesn't really seem like it should add up, but uh, people were cool with it. Because he was a hero. Oh, yeah, because he because he did it. Good and enough. Thanks. Of course, it was suspicious to them. So they just were like, well, it's not like this gift horse in the mouth. Like, great. Yeah, absolutely. So along those three days uh, to Gilf, will encounter Billy, who's got some sad news. He was not able to get all the money together and he cannot go to college after all. And we see to Gilf raise the people's eyebrow. Clearly, this will not stand. So she fulfills her destiny, as we all saw in the script. She returns to the Vulcan downed science vessel to begin pulling out all the copper piping to take it to the local <laughs> steel yard, <laughs> along with all of her beer cans uh, to come up with the money to get Billy to go to school after all. No, uh, what she does 
is uh, gives humanity Velcro. I like the idea that T'Pol wants to solve this problem. To kill. This kid does. This kid need. Yeah. To kill needs to solve this problem. This kid deserves to go to college. He is part of humanity's bright future. What can I do to generate this money? Oh, well, I could sell some of our technology. Well, hold on a second. Let stuff. me, let me, let me. Put my hold on. Let me finish my, let me finish my thought. Okay. So she's going through this. Well, I could sell some of our technology for cash that we can use to, to, to make this happen. But what technology can I sell that is harmless yet enough of a technological advance that I can make a f- quick dollar off selling it to someone else and then fucking off. And Velcro is like the perfect idea for that. It's, it's handy. It's space agey, but it is also quite like achievable for humans to develop. So and ironically, the guy who does develop it is the name of the Vulcan in real life. Uh, yeah. They cl- cl- yeah, it was like a French guy, Demetral, maybe something like that. Maybe we should have done this as a skip before we started recording. But let, let's pose this question. How is Tagilf going to get the money to get Billy through school? And Rick mm-hmm. Berman and Bran Braga sitting there brainstorming. Well, she could strip all the copper out of the spaceship. I'm sure there's some, you know, valuable commodities there she could hawk. Or maybe she like sells off Velcro. What if she enters the local amateur night at the strip club (laughs) and we show her dancing with her nipples out behind like a mylar sheath and people just making it rain all over her and she just strips her way to getting Billy that. And then Dan O'Shannon, who was the third person credited by the story, maybe even Chris Black's like, Dude, we can't, we, guys, we, we can't, we can't do that. <laughs> they just, they just, they just grab some chloroform and they, they make, they just, they, just, they partially suffocate Brandon Braga long enough <laughs> to take no. that out of the fucking. She's going to sell him Velcro. Go to sleep. And then, uh, you know, Dan O'Shanahan, Dan O'Shannon sitting there watching this actually premiere, like really patting himself on the back. Like, God, I'm so happy I talked those guys out of that fucking tacky to gilf naked silhouette uh the storyboard showing her nipples and then he gets to the part where they're stealing clothes and see that that's where they move the scene he's like damn it <laughs> almost got us out of this one guy i would have actually been less offended had to gilf gone to the local strip club for amateur night and seen her nipples in an appropriate setting not someone's backyard she's currently stealing from that would have been fucking awesome, actually. That that wouldn't even have been an exploitation. That would have just been like, all right, if you're going to do it, do it the right way. So, yeah, she sells the uh, the Velcro, but not the good Velcro. That's like the silent rip from Garden State. Yeah. This is like... Kind of let the humans figure some stuff out for themselves, right? Give them a starting point. shitty low-grade kind that like picks up all the lint, too, and just gets so fucked up that uh, yeah. it's... It's perfectly chosen. Like, this is just enough to be worth a few hundred dollars, which is all I need. And they'll start some innovation and no one will fucking know. They already have the materials to make this shit. They just needed to accidentally come across it. And none of that's in dialogue. It's just implied. And it's perfect implications along the way. The The money magically shows up in the jar. Everyone is excited. And as you mentioned, uh, the precisely the guy who you would expect is going to stay behind is going to stay behind. And he calls the bluff again and says, I'm not going. And I'm not asking for permission to stay. 
So you two can decide however you want to fucking put that to the bosses. But I've decided I'm going to explore this country and its cities, and I'm going to see this shit firsthand. And uh, Maybe that's die what's in up. World War III, if that ever Who happens. Knows? No, your truther never happened. Uh, I'm not the only truther in this episode, and we'll get to that in a second. The, the important part there is he gets buy-in from Moe into Gilf to yeah. continue the strong Vulcan tradition of lying we established this episode to the point where they're now lying to Vulcan High Command. Uh, the Vulcans show up. They go, hey, there's supposed to be four of you. Mm, sorry, two of them actually died. Um, I assume that once they get back into orbit, they nuke the Vulcan crash site because it's the only way to make sure the humans never get a hold of that. They kind so, of gloss yeah. over it. Um, I like that Vulcan dude, bro. It's like, yeah, I am overly involved, but also I'm a historian and this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to watch them on the cusp of this very important time. Uh, I do not want to give up the mission. I do not want to come back 20 years later and record from space. I want to be in the field uh, and really given this my all. And they're like, all right, we'll lie for you, I guess. Off we go. We jump back into the dinner table. Um, I'm not sure what it is exactly, but somebody poses something about Armstrong on the moon. And I got some real shades that uh, to Paul denies the initial lunar landing. Yeah, she's like, what if he isn't? <laughs> like, It's part of the joke, right? Like I get what they're trying to set up is they didn't quite land it the way they wanted to, which is that should have been an indicator that to Paul is doing this as a gag, you know, no, when that happens. And that could be like where that- trip, like, Oh, you fucking got me. I believed you. You fucking got me. So Paul's proving World War Three never happened, and neither did the lunar landing stage. Call Joe Rogan. Call Joe Rogan immediately. <laughs> this is an episode he needs to say. The the it ends awkwardly, like we already discussed, where they she says it's a joke after they won't believe it, and the big reveal at the end is to Paul gets out a purse that her great great grandmother had indicates the entire story was in fact 100% accurate. That is why she went to Carbon Creek. It isn't the stupid geological survey thing that she like lays out to Archer. Like that's just her cover because quite possibly no one knows aside from you know, to Paul and her family and his family, this shit actually happened. The interesting story turn here would have been her to start telling the story them to say, no way, that's bullshit. Everybody knows Zephyrm Cochran. And then her to say, actually, it was a big secret that my family kept from Falcon High Command. Yeah, like that my would, great-great-grandmother was party to treason. Yeah, right, to cultural contamination and God knows what else. Uh, because that, it's almost... Provide, it also provides a tremendous amount of rationale as to why... Uh, to Paul is so personally invested and interested and in humanity. That's what I'm wondering what's going to happen is, is there this family tradition that has been handed down that there's something about humanity, ignore what the Vulcan government says. Grandma's telling her daughter, telling her daughter, telling her daughter, the humans are good. We need to back them. That that's my takeaway from all of this. She pulls the purse out. I would think that it's almost negligent that Archer and Trip don't don't go. Hey, hey uh, f- 
Admiral Forrest, just real quick, can you look into this story? Like she said it was a joke, but just in case, they say they got files on it. Uh, I find it fucking ridiculous that of all the things to Paul is going to bring on. The, I'm busting Archer's balls about bringing his grade school astronomy book. I'm going to bring my fucking grandma's purse. I mean, if it's an artifact of her great grandmother's great great grandmother's time on Earth, I get her bringing it. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Like, this is a family heirloom of a secret of our connection to humanity. I'm about to be an officer on this human ship. I'm going to be about to be assigned to earth. And then I'm going to be an officer on this human ship. I'm bringing the fucking purse. Let me let's, let's flesh an ancestor for worship. You know, like they, they, they believe in having like idols basically like this is makes sense. Yeah. This is a real Akuchimoya moment. I guess I was almost thinking like when she went to carbon Creek, was she somehow getting that purse that her grandmother left behind? Or you think her grandma brought that back? that to Gilf brought that back and it's been a family heirloom that's been passed down. I could have gone had she, I think she she brought it back because they were in human clothes when they got to the ship. If she had opened it up and like pulled out a journal that her grandma kept and maybe that had been, and I don't know the right way to like flesh it out because it's a silent ending, just showing her pulling that out. But yeah, my grandma kept a diary. It's my grandma's writings that really inspired me and opened me up to the human mission and brought me here and has made me as warm to their behavior as it is. Like that would have been a plus retcon explanation. Like why does DePaul put up with so much bullshit? Why is she so loyal to the humans? Undeservedly so in season one that we criticized earlier. I also thought it would have been cool if part of her trip back to Carbon Creek would have been to actually recover uh, Mestral's diaries or notes on his next hundred or so years of observing humanity. I mean, technically speaking, given when they were there, he could have simply survived until first contact and then like contacted the Vulcan ship and like, Hey, I've been here for a fucking century. They nuked me, but I lived through it. Cause it's not real. Get the fuck out of here. Actually, it would be nice. They said so, nukes. there were no nukes. It's all a lie. <laughs> so hard, hard to know exactly where to take that one, but lots of potential. Like, like we said, it's not a terrible episode. Not at all. There's some interesting ideas, some 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 of the stuff where it's the Vulcans kind of arguing about humanity and Mistral's uh, uh, story arc throughout it is cool. But fuck me, this show is still trying to establish its identity and they go way off the fucking beaten path to do this one. Like this is this is not a season two episode. I said it was like a season two episode 13. This is season five. This is yeah. This is like deep in the run. Or you have tapped. You've tapped out for a while, and you gotta get a little. You gotta go deep, deep for creativity. They they haven't even done the basics yet, and they're already doing this stuff. It's not good. Or you know, if you're gonna play this as season two or episode two, you go deep into what we just talked about, where we disclose yeah. that uh, to Paul has a concrete soft spot built in that has been passed down from her family uh, to believe in the humans and something that bridges the gap of all the nonsense she went through in that, that season one. Uh, then if you had used it, if had they used this as a barge of the dead moment, like barge of the dead sucked because we had the story too many times and they were bringing that out. What season seven or was that season six? 
That was season six. That was a season, season sucks. sucks moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, had that happened like season one, would have worked great. Would have been perfect. It would have bolstered the character. No complaints. I think this could have been a real good way to use that in a, a, a highly productive uh, setting, but oh well. I would recommend when you read the, the intro for next week's episode, you read it from memory alpha. Otherwise, you might spoil yourself. Well, I'll tell you what. Much. Why don't you go ahead and do it since uh, my method of reading is spoiler heavy traditionally. No problem. It's going to be season two, episode three, Minefield. Enterprise strays into a Romulan minefield and is disabled by a cloaked mine. While deactivating another mine, Reed gets pinned to the ship's hull. This begins a long Enterprise show, long actually, subplot about the Romulans, which was all intended to lead to season five course enterprise only has four seasons so we know we know what's going to happen there here i thought you're going to say this is going to begin a long running gag of reed getting stuck to the outside of the ship for various reasons <laughs> maybe that too but this is this is cool i like this one and it has actually a direct follow-up after this which is also very neat but the the biggest shame to me is that they intended to pay off the romulan subplot that they start in this episode in season five the actual Earth Romulan War that is in lore for Star Trek, they don't ever get a chance. Moops. Uh, boopsie, boopsie. Instead, we'll deal with an uh, interesting submarine style story next week. Thanks for listening to Vidra, please. We'll see you then.